Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about the Servile Wars. These were a series of three conflicts... Uh, that took place between enslaved subjects of the Roman Republic and the Romans themselves, uh, the, the, you know, led by the Roman Senate. Uh, and they, they took place between 135 BC and 71 BC. And you've probably heard of at least one of them, even if you didn't realise it. The Third Servile War uh, is also known as the Gladiators' War or Spartacus's War. Uh, the former slave gladiator Spartacus, he led slaves against the Republic. And uh, this was made famous, of course, uh, in, in the 1960 Stanley Kubrick film Spartacus, which gives us a moderately accurate retelling of the Third Servile War. It is actually accurate up to a point, um, which is you know a lot more than can be said about a lot of uh, historical dramas. Anyway, all three of these conflicts, uh, they're all slave rebellions, and they all feature uh, former slaves becoming leaders, rising up against their oppressors and taking the fight to the Roman Republic. Now, ultimately and unfortunately, none of these slave rebellions were successful in affecting real, any real long-term change or seizing freedom or independence for those who rose up. But the stories are fascinating all the same. We're going to get across them today. Um, and the interesting thing about these wars is that they are amongst the very small number of slave rebellions that, that even had, you know, a tiny amount of momentum and success throughout history. The most famous example is, of course, uh, the Haitian Revolution, uh, of course, but uh, there was also the Zanj Rebellion against the Abbasid Caliphate. Uh, there was the 1811 German Coast Uprising in the United States. And I guess it depends on, it depends on what your definition of slavery is, but maybe even the English Peasants' Revolt in, in 1381. Uh, that one was about serfdom, which is effectively a type of slavery or at least type of unfree labour. But uh, look, we're not here to talk about any of that today. We're going back a lot further, over, over two millennia, to talk about the slave revolts that, that uh, shook the Roman Republic in uh, in the late Republic period here. They're known as the Servile Revolts, as uh, Servile comes from the Latin word for slave, and uh, all three of them, of course, involve blood and guts and horrible murder. Don't you worry about that. It's interesting to explore the legacies of these riots and, the, and their impact not only on society back then, but also today, especially from a cultural standpoint. So let's get to it here, have a chat about these th three slave rebellions, un starting, unsurprisingly, with the first Servile War, and then we'll do the second and after that, we'll do, do the third groundbreaking approach to ordering those things. And anyway, we're going all the way back, all the way back here, uh, as I mentioned, to 135 BCE. So that's BC before the Common Era. Uh, so remember that we're counting years backwards today. 135 uh, becomes uh, comes before 134. Uh, so we count down here. Don't forget about that. Anyway, we're heading to the island of Sicily. That's the little island at the end of the Italian peninsula. If you imagine the, uh, the Italian peninsula looked like a, a boot, like a stiletto heel, uh, it's the island that looks like it's about to be kicked by sort of the toe of the, of the boot here. And, and in 135 BC, Sic uh, Sicily was filled with Romans who had flocked in there after the Carthaginians had been booted out. Uh, Rome gave the, uh, the Carthaginians a proper bloody hiding in the Second Punic War. And after the Carthaginians were expelled from Sicily... Tons and tons of Romans moved there to settle. They enjoyed cheap land or just moved into a abandoned Carthaginian properties. And with these Romans came their slaves. Slavery is not new, of course. It was a very big part of life in the ancient world, including ancient Rome. But going back even further than that, slaves existed in society. They've existed for time immemorial, back to 
ancient Sumer, uh, Babylon, Egypt. Slavery was a common practice in ancient Greece as well, where there was this complicated class system that categorized and governed enslaved people. And slavery is also part of ancient Rome. Most Roman, Roman slaves were uh, captives that were brought back from conquest, uh, and they filled roles in many different levels of society. At this point in history, slave, you know, at this point when the Republic is expanding and conquering very aggressively, a lot of people are being brought back uh, to, to be forced to work as slaves. And, and as I say, filling all sorts of different roles. Unskilled slaves, of course, forced to work as, as labourers. But even skilled positions, such as teachers, even physicians, were held by slaves. But today we're focusing on the unskilled slaves that were forced to, to toil away at backbreaking menial labour in the most abhorrent conditions. Under Roman law, slaves were considered property. They weren't considered people. Uh, and this meant that their owners could do anything they liked to them without fear of any legal repercussions whatsoever, right, act, right up to actually just murdering them. They could do that with impunity. And in Sicily, I'm sorry to say, it was particularly bad. Slaves uh, that were made to work in Sicily were often just more or less worked to death. Um, most of them weren't clothed or provisioned properly, and they were forced to work until they more or less just dropped, uh, dropped dead. And, and, and the reason for this is that there was no shortage of supply, as I said at this point. The Roman Republic, they're off you know, conquering you know, this part of the world, that part of the world at this point in history, specifically off in Macedonia, um, enslaving countless captives. And there were also many pirate crews that scoured the Mediterranean, taking prisoners and selling them off as slaves. And so for this reason, with supply so high, uh, slaves were bought and sold very cheaply indeed, and they were treated as a just horrendously and unforgivably disposable commodity by their owners. Thousands of slaves died every year of mistreatment, malnutrition, exposure, things like this. They were kept chained together in the fields. Uh, at night, they were, they were locked away in dungeon-like pits crammed together there. And governmental corruption and negligence prevented the Roman Senate from taking any action on ensuring even the most basic, the most minimum standard of care was, a, was given to these people, uh, especially in Sicily. And so by the time our story starts properly in 135 BC, as I say, conditions on the island of Sicily, you know, much more so than, than many other places, are just truly, truly terrible. But it was in this year, 135, that a slave named, uh, named Eunice inspired his fellow slaves into a revolt. And here's how he did it. Eunice was forced to work as an entertainer by his owners. He would, you know, he'd perform tricks, he'd breathe fire and, you know, do sleight of hand and all sorts of other bits and pieces for the entertainment of, of free roamers, maybe guests of his own or whatever else. And um, as he was giving these performances, he would make sort of satirical remarks about how the slaves that, the, that they owned would eventually rise up against, the, against them under his leadership. Uh, and many Romans found this very funny. They thought he was just, you know, it was a bit of a, a bit of a gag. He's just, you know, telling japes and jokes up on the stage, whatever else. And his remarks weren't taken very seriously at all. But Eunice was actually deadly serious about it. He believed himself to be a prophet with a destiny to deliver his fellow slaves from their ordeal. And so... When a group of cruelly mistreated slaves sought him out, they sought Eunice out specifically, and they asked him advice as to what they should do about their horrible owner, a bloke known whose name was Damophilius, Eunice decided that his moment had come. He spoke to me, he said, listen, the time has come for a revolt. We're going to go into a, a full-scale rebellion. And he called his fellow slaves uh, to action and to arms. He organized a group of 400 slaves who armed themselves and they descended on the city of Enna in central Sicily. This is the home of Damophilius. And there they took control of the city and put it to the fire and the sword. It's said that these 400 slaves sacked the city and executed every single one of its inhabitants, with the exception of the blacksmiths. Instead, 
the blacksmiths were now, they were the ones who were now forced to work. They were chained to their forges and they were, um, and they were forced to make, uh, weaponry for the newly for the newly liberated slaves here, and as for Damophilius himself, the bloke who had sort of been mistreating the the slaves that kicked this whole thing off, he was captured, he was tortured in a theatre in front of a mob, and then he was butchered. And so his chickens really sort of did come home to roost there, didn't they? Anyway, after Enna was taken by these former slaves, the revolt spread across much of the island as more and more slaves they heard about what had happened and they took up arms against their masters. Eunice crowned himself a king. He appointed him. Uh, he appointed a, a Greek former slave whose name was Archaeus as the commander of the, this nascent rebel army that he was building, and another prominent uh, military leader whose name was Cleon went and joined up with Eunice and his forces after uh, after sort of starting a smaller revolt of his own, no doubt inspired by Eunice and, his, and the success that he'd been having. So. This army only got bigger and bigger as time went on. Its ranks swelled into the tens of thousands. It might have, uh, after capturing sort of city after city, um, it, may have been as, it may have been as big as 100,000 or even more. The lowest estimates from historians at the time are 70,000 and the highest go up to 200,000. Any way you slice it, it was a lot of people. And over the next year, moving into the 134 BC, the the rebelling army they took they took control of almost the entire island of sicily they defeated four successive praetors and their militias and at this point the roman senate they decide well bloody hell we better take action we better we better do something and they so they send an army under the command of the uh, of the consul flaccus but he didn't make any inroads into retaking the island and so far eunice and his army this rebel army they've held firm they've rebuffed the attempts of the romans in sicily itself to put down the revolt and they even managed to see off those sent in from the peninsula by the senate so they're kicking goals with both feet however of course it wasn't to last because in the next year in 133 bce the roman senate sent the new consul lucius calpurnius piso to put down the rebellion and this bloke actually did manage to make some real progress. Piso wrought a campaign of violent retribution against the rebel army, not just content with defeating them. He also wanted to uh, stamp the seal of Roman authority over these rebels once he had, uh, once he had defeated them. And uh, he laid waste to these former slaves and their armies in, in several places. After capturing the town of Masana, for instance, he executed no fewer than 8,000 former slaves that surrendered to his army. They weren't taken prisoner. They weren't, you know, forced back into bondage, but instead they were just summarily executed, essentially. The wind was changing. The next year, in 132, the consul Publius Rupilius went uh, went to Sicily to uh, to follow up on the work that Piso had done, and, and he managed to put down the rebellion for good. He lay siege to cities that were held by the former slaves. He succeeded in capturing many of them due to treachery from within the walls of the cities as people betrayed the former slaves to the Romans. And after a brutal campaign against the rebels, Rupilius and the Roman Senate, they turned on the city of Enna, which again was betrayed to the Romans by some of those within the walls of the city itself. And as the slave revolt was finally put down, Rupilius wrought a terrible retribution against those who had rebelled. He was very, very clearly intent upon sending a message. He crucified no fewer than 20,000 of them, a horrific way to die. And 20,000 of these rebels suffered that fate at his hands. A very clear message then. Once the island was brought back under Roman control, a clear and terrible message as to the fate of anyone who would hope to rise up against the authority of the Roman Republic. As for Eunice himself, he was captured by the Romans and they were keen to specifically make an example of him with a dreadful punishment. But 
he never faced it. He died of disease before he faced Roman retribution. And with his death, so too died the very last spark of the First Servile War. But it wasn't the end of slave revolts in Sicily. Because the Second Servile War, which obviously came after the First, be be weird to call it the second otherwise it was it was uh it, it took place just three decades later in 104 bce and it took place on the island of sicily as well however the background to this revolt starts much much farther afield as in 104 bce the consul gaius marius he was fighting the cimbrian war maybe it's the cimbrian war probably should have looked up how to pronounce that before i started the show uh, anyway, this war is being fought to the north, right? It's taking place in and around modern-day France, Germany, Switzerland, Austria. And Marius needs soldiers for it, lots of them. He needs lots of soldiers to fight this war. And uh, in, in doing so, he's searching here and there for new recruits. He asks a bloke, uh, King Nicomedes III of Bithynia, the modern coast of uh, uh, the northern coast of modern-day Turkey, I should say. He asks King Nicomedes III, he asks him for help. King Nicomedes, an ally of the, of the Romans, he says, sorry, mate. I don't have any men to give you for this uh, campaign you're fighting. And they go, well, why? What what are you doing, mate? We we just need any, actually anyone who can, you know, bloody hold a weapon, knows the pointy end of the spear from the other end. And he goes, I've got actual no one because you've already enslaved every single able-bodied man in Bithynia for failing to pay their dues that they owe to you. And the Romans go, oh, okay, well, that's no good then. That's, that's, yeah, not ideal. We need more men to fight. And so uh, what the Senate then does, they turn around and they ordered that taking slaves from Roman allies is now prohibited. And any such slaves that were taken, that were originated from states that were allied with Rome, should be immediately freed. Now, we know that Rome loved to take slaves from the areas they captured, but they now can't do it from anywhere that is actually allied with the Republic itself. And despite the Cimbrian, I'm going for Cimbrian, despite the Cimbrian War uh, taking place in the north and Bithynia being found, you know, a long way to the east, this development had an important impact on Sicily and its slave population. Because after the First Servile War, things returned more or less to how they had previously in Sicily. Slaves were forced to work in appalling conditions across the island. But... Once the Roman Senate issued an edict that all slaves that were that originated from areas that are allied to Rome, that they were no longer to be taken, and also any that lived in slavery at the moment were to be freed, right? This changed things in Sicily hugely because the proprietor Publius Licinius Nerva, he ordered that any slaves originating in areas allied to Rome to be freed immediately, just as the Senate had ordained. And as a result, around 800 slaves in Sicily were freed. And this ended up being a very unpopular move indeed. Slaveholders were furious with Nerva for causing them to lose some of their slaves. And on the other end of the spectrum, slaves were furious because others were getting freed while they remained enslaved. So Nerva, realising that his decision to obey the Roman Senate was about to make him very unpopular indeed with, with people from all sorts of, you know, all walks of life here. He reversed his position. He said, all right, you know what? No one's getting freed. We're going back to square one. Don't worry about the, the edict that's come from the Senate. We'll just, we'll just leave it. But rather than fix the issue, this did not actually, you know, make things go back to how they were before. It only made it worse. A lot worse, in fact, especially for Nerva, 
as the slave population of Sicily then rose in revolt. A second slave rebellion uh, rebellion began, and Nerva absolutely stuffed it up beyond belief when attempting to deal with it. The revolt gained significant traction very quickly. I mean, the, you know, it was only 30 years ago that the first one took place. It's still fresh in the memory of some of the older people. And uh, the small numbers of troops that Nerva sent off to put down the beginnings of the rebellion were quickly defeated by the growing army of rebels. This army armed itself. They took the fight to the Romans, led by a man named Salvius, who followed in the footsteps of Eunice by crowning himself king. Salvius marched his army against Roman-held cities. He captured many of them, and the army's numbers swelled as other revolts broke out and joined Salvius's cause. With over 20,000 men, maybe as many as 40,000, the rebel army quickly became a very real threat to the Roman Republic. But Perhaps having learnt the lessons of the First Servile War, the Romans were a little more decisive in their response this time around. The praetor Lucius Licinius Lucullus was sent to Sicily by the Roman Senate with an army of 17,000 Roman soldiers ready to put down this rebellion. Now, you might think that, you know, 17,000 going up as, against as many as 40,000 uh, uh, rebels is a bit of an unfair fight, but you've got to remember that these are highly trained, professional, disciplined soldiers that were being deployed, and so the uh, the odds are a little more even than you might have thought. Now, Salvius, he initially wanted to hole up inside a stronghold with his armies. When he heard that the Romans were, were coming to uh, uh, to Sicily to put down his revolt, Salvius, he said, listen, we need to, we need to take a defensive position here, play this one a little more slowly and see how it develops. However, he was talked out of this. He was persuaded by his uh, by a, a general of his, a man named Athenion, to meet the Romans on the battlefield and perhaps contest, uh, you know, contest this fight with sheer force of numbers. So the armies instead marched towards one another, and they finally met in the Battle of Scythia, a battle that initially was hard fought and seemed to favour the rebels. However, in the midst of the fight, as the rebels were beginning to gain the upper hand. Their general, Athenion, he was badly injured and he fell from his horse. And this broke the nerve of the rebel army immediately. After the loss of their general, they were routed and the Romans chased them down and butchered them. They pursued the rebels as they fled, hacking them to pieces, the, the ones who didn't get away. The estimated death toll on the rebels goes as high as 20,000. So even if, you know, you put the upper estimate of the, uh, of, of the rebel army at 40,000, they've lost half of their, uh, of their troops here. It was a crushing blow against the rebels, of course, but miraculously, Athenian actually survived. He wasn't killed after coming off of his horse. He managed to return to the rebel forces to lead them. And the rebels did do their best to hold back the onslaught at Lucullus's hands. Uh, he recaptured city after city, defeating the rebels and once again bringing them back under Roman control. But the rebels, they had retreated to a stronghold called Triocala, and Lucullus, he methodically made his way towards this stronghold, determined to crush them once and for all. He laid siege to Triocala, and he waited for the opportune moment to attack, building siege weapons and all sorts of stuff to make sure that his victory would be crushing and overwhelming. But as he waited, this is interesting here, his tenure as a commander expired. Now, he had obviously expected, he's doing very well in Sicily, he had expected that his tenure would be extended and that he would be able to continue his campaign, uh, obviously given his performance, but it wasn't. And I tell you what, he was not happy about this at all. Politics, man. Lucullus wasn't going to cop this on the chin either, as once he found out that he'd been dismissed and was about to be replaced, he lifted the siege. He burnt all of his siege equipment. 
he chucked away all of his provisions and disbanded his army. Talk about bloody chucking your toys out of the pram. This was a calculated move on Lucullus' part in an effort to make the bloke who was replacing him, a fellow named Gaius Servilius, look as bad as possible. Imagine this. You get fired from your job and you just put all the paperwork you've done, you know, over the last however many years straight in the bloody shredder, mate. And then, I don't know, set your work PC on fire. And it only got worse for the Romans, either because of Lucullus's effort to make Servilius look incompetent or perhaps Servilius was incompetent. Because in 102 BCE, the rebels marched out to meet Servilius with his uh, with his new army, right? Once he arrived in Sicily, and they routed him. They won a huge they won a huge victory. Athenion had replaced Salvius as the ultimate as the as the overall leader of the rebel army, and he uh, he led this rebel army to victory against Servilius and the Romans. And the rebels they're in great shape. Lucullus has taken his ball and gone home. Servilius has had his ass bloody Servilius to him on a silver platter. And things were going extremely well indeed. That is, until the next year, 101 BCE, when the consul Manius Aquilius was dispatched to deal with the rebels and was aided by a significant contribution to his army from none other than Gaius Marius, the bloke who had been fighting the Cimbrian War. And sadly, Aquilius was actually equal to the task of putting down the revolt. And after landing in Sicily, he quickly went about stamping out the rebellion and exacting another campaign of brutal retribution against the rebels. The story goes that Aquilius himself killed Athenian. Um, There's to be no escape for Athenian this time. But uh, Athenian wasn't the only one to face the brutal consequences imposed by the Romans. For instance, a thousand rebels that were uh, captured and imprisoned they were sentenced to fight in the Colosseum for the amusement of the public. This is obviously a very popular form of entertainment back then. However, these captives, they refused to do it. Rather than be exploited for public entertainment, these prisoners, they stuck it to their captors by agreeing to kill each other in prison instead of in the full view of the public. They preferred to die in their own terms, and the Romans never got their intended spectacle as all of these prisoners did indeed end each other's in their own lives. But that was the end of the Second Servile War, and it was also the end of slave uprisings on the island of Sicily. Because the Third Servile War, which we move on to now, took place a lot closer to the heart of the Roman Republic in Capua, not too far from the city of Rome itself. Before this, the heartland of Rome had never really had to worry about slave uprisings or any of the sort. Obviously, they got a bit of a scare with the the invasion of Hannibal. But rebellions like the First and the Second Servile War, they'd always taken place at a distance. This was about to change, however. In 73 BCE, three, dec- three decades after Athenian and the Second Servile War, just as I mentioned at this point in Roman history, gladi- uh, gladiatorial combat, very popular form of entertainment. Slaves, criminals, prisoners of war, they were taken to these uh, gladi- gladiatorial schools and they were trained to fight as gladiators and then pitted against each other in the arena. And the Third Servile War, it began at one of these gladiatorial schools in Capua, which is a little south of Rome, where 200 or so slaves planned and plotted a bid for freedom in 73 BC, as I say. When this plot was discovered, however, around uh, around 70 of these gladiators went, oh, bugger it, we're not giving up this easily. They stormed the school's kitchens, they seized makeshift uh, weapons such as knives and spits, and they fought their way out of the school just like that. And once they'd escaped, these 70 men... They chose their leaders, and you may be very familiar with the name of one of these former slave gladiators who was elected leader of this band of escapees. His name was, of course, Spartacus. 
Spartacus is said to have been Thracian. Thrace is an area now split between modern-day Bulgaria, Greece, and Turkey. Uh, it's between the Aegean and the and the Black Sea. And uh, he is thought to have fought for the Romans in their military, either as a soldier or as a mercenary, uh, before eventually being condemned uh, to, to slavery, perhaps uh, potentially for desertion. We're not 100% sure. As you can tell, the details are a bit hazy because much of the information we have about Spartacus is fairly biased and unreliable due to him being, you know, an enemy of Rome. And it was Rome what wrote most of the history books here. Anyway, these 70 slaves led by Spartacus and, and, and a handful of other men as well, they fought their way out of the school and then they defeated the troops that were sent after them by the Romans uh, in order to try to capture these escaped gladiators and bring them back. They actually fought and killed the, the Romans that were sent after them. And in doing so, they armed themselves now with military-grade weaponry and armour. And uh, so armed, they took to the countryside. They raided and pillaged settlements. They freed slaves. They had their ranks grow and grow in number as many of these freed slaves joined them. And eventually, they built up quite a sizable army. They recognised that they had to do something to shore up their uh, their position. You know, they're fighting this sort of almost guerrilla-like warfare against uh, surrounding towns and settlements. And they realised that eventually there was going to be a response from the Romans and they needed to be ready for it. And so the rebels moved to Mount Vesuvius, where they took up a defensive position in order to plan their next move and see how the Romans responded. Now, the Roman authorities didn't initially respond very quickly. They seemed to think of all of this raiding and pillaging as, as more of a, a crime wave than an actual, you know, armed insurrection. But eventually, and perhaps because of the fact that the area that the rebels were ravaging was a very wealthy part of the Republic and filled with the estates of the rich and powerful, eventually uh, the government took action. And maybe it's not surprising given that all their you know, holiday houses are getting burnt to the ground. Before the end of the year, Rome dispatched a praetor whose name was Gaius Claudius Glaber uh, and a hastily assembled militia of about 3,000 men in order to put down this revolt. This revolt. Glaber descended upon Mount Vesuvius, where the rebels were, of course, and he set up his troops at the mountain's only access point, the only way in and, uh, you know, up and down from it, uh, effectively besieging them on top of this mountain on the mountainsides here. Now, Glaber was happy enough to just starve them out. He didn't, he wasn't interested in fighting with them uh, in the mountain. He was just going to block their only, their only way out and just, you know, one way or another he'd get them. They'd either starve or they'd have to come down and fight a battle. Or so he thought. Because under Spartacus's leadership, this rebel army fashioned themselves ropes and ladders that were made from the trees and the vines on the mountains, on the mountain, and they used them to climb down the steep slopes in the cliffs rather than, you know, take this path that Glaber had blocked off. And once they'd done that, they flanked around to Glaber's rear, and now he was the one trapped with his militia. As the rebels manoeuvred behind him, they cut the Roman militia to pieces after leaving them with no way out. Again, they're they're sort of holding this choke point, but they were the ones that ended up being trapped in it. And further efforts that were made in 73 BC by by Rome to, to, to quash this rebel army failed utterly. Spartacus and his men defeated every expedition that was sent out to bring the rebels to heel, seized their weapons and armour, and saw even more people join the ranks of the rebels as tales of victory spread amongst slaves and freemen who left their lives behind to go and join Spartacus in this uprising. And by the end of 73 BCE, the army is said to have consisted of 70,000 men, an enormous number. And as we head into 72 BCE, this army spends its time training and raiding in an ever-expanding radius around southern Italy to the point where they control, effectively, much of the southern half of the peninsula. 
Now, even today, interestingly, we're not 100% sure what the rebels' ultimate aims were. We don't know if they were fighting to liberate all the slaves in Rome or if they were just looking for a way to secure their own freedom by fighting their way out of the area controlled by the Republic. Some classical historians even suggest that Spartacus's real objective was to actually take the fight to the city of Rome itself and capture it. But again, we just don't know for sure. There are no lasting records from the rebels themselves as to what their final goals were. But we do know that as we move into 72 BC, the, the rebel army, it made plans and began to move north towards the Alps. And with the winter over, the Roman Senate again began to take action. The Roman Senate deployed two consular legions and uh, they deployed them with hmm, quite mixed results. We don't have the best idea of what actually happened. The two main accounts that we have from back then from the uh, contemporary historians Appian and Plutarch, they, two tell, they tell two very different stories. Appian talks about Spartacus's unrealized ambitions to attack the city of Rome itself. As I mentioned, that was something that he might have been interested in doing, we're not sure. While Plutarch talks of a march uh, as far north as today's Medina, the town of Medina. But uh, both these historians, they do agree on the fact that the Roman legions did suffer various defeats, although they disagree as to exactly where, at the hands of the rebel armies. Uh, as the armies headed north, and both of them agree that at, by the end of the year, the rebels actually abandoned their push north, turned around, and headed back south for the winter. Even if they didn't make it to the Alps, the rebel, uh, the rebel army, they had managed to rebuff all the Roman attempts to stamp out the rebellion, and the Senate is now very worried, as even their mighty legions weren't, weren't enough. And as I mentioned before, this is a lot closer to the heartland of the Republic than they're comfortable with. You know, this isn't on an island across the sea. This is somewhere that is a much, much closer to the daily life of, uh, of many of the people in charge of the Republic. And so they're very concerned. They're very worried. And they decide that the time has come for decisive action. They called in a bloke named Marcus Licinius Crassus to act as a general. And if you haven't heard of Crassus, let me tell you this. He was a very nasty piece of work. Crassus was one of the wealthiest blokes in Rome. And this was thanks to his enormous real estate portfolio and his very unscrupulous approach to doing business. Crassus would buy out cheap and run down, burnt out, damaged buildings. And he would then repair or rebuild them with slave labor and reap the profits from doing so. But it doesn't stop there. Crassus was also in charge of the first ever Roman fire brigade. And you think, oh, nice one. Okay, here he goes, organizing firefighters to save buildings from being burnt down for the common good. Fantastic. Good on you, mate. Well, not quite, because here's what would happen. If a building caught fire, right, Crassus and his firefighters, they would rush to the scene. They would go, they would, they would immediately, as quick as they could, they could, just like modern firefighters, they would get to the scene of the fire ready to put it out. But then, this is not a joke, they wouldn't put it out. They would stand there ready to do it, while Crassus negotiated the sale of the burning building with its owner as it burnt. As the firefighters stood around doing nothing about the fire, I kid you not, Crassus would stand there offering piteously low prices for this burning building to the homeowner, which would obviously only get lower as the building continued to burn. And these desperate homeowners would then sell, you know, hoping to cut their losses and salvage something from the situation. And once the sale was made, it was only then that Crassus would have his firefighters put out the fire. And then he'd do the same thing he always did. He'd have his slaves rebuild this broken, burnt-out shell of a house. And then he would lease it back to the original owner, who is now a tenant rather than a homeowner. 
So by doing this and all sorts of other terrible things, Crassus became the equivalent of a modern billionaire, and he was a very powerful figure indeed in the late Roman Republic period. And I'll tell you this, he wasn't much kinder to the people that he was put in charge of when he was made a general that was you know, heading off to, uh, to fight this rebel army. He wasn't much kinder as a military leader. Have you heard of decimation? You probably have. It's the punishment... Uh, it was a punishment for Roman legions where one in ten soldiers would be condemned to death and killed by the other nine. It was a, a savage and, and a brutal form of punishment and it had fallen out of, of common use for quite some time before Crassus revived it when fighting Spartacus and the rebel army. He either revived um, decimation and did it to the two legions who had previously failed fighting the rebels, the consular legions I mentioned before, or... He did it to his entire army after an early defeat at the hands of Spartacus and his forces. We're not sure. In either case, what happened was this. The troops in question, they'd be divided into groups of 10 and they would draw straws. And whoever drew the, the short straw would then be killed by the other nine people. They'd be clubbed or stoned to death or stabbed. And uh, if this weren't punishment enough, those other nine would then be given reduced rations and forced to sleep outside the legion's fortified camps. And it was a brutal and barbaric punishment that was designed to inspire fear and instill discipline in troops. And I'll tell you this, it bloody worked. The decimation of Crassus led to iron discipline in his ranks as his soldiers were now more afraid of him than they were of the enemy. They didn't want to displease him lest he, you know once again uh, unleash his wrath on them. And so with his newly, uh, I don't really want to say inspired, but I guess I'm, I'm lacking another term here, with his newly invigorated army, Crassus chased the rebels further and further south with his well-trained, disciplined and probably terrified army of between 32,000 and 48,000 troops. And as he did this, the tide well and truly turned against Spartacus and the rebels, who were first, who were forced further and further south. Spartacus, recognising that they were likely to be driven from the peninsula altogether, he made arrangements with a pirate fleet to escape the peninsula and, uh, and flee instead to Sicily. He hoped to inspire another revolt there, add to his army, rally against Crassus and his onslaught. He paid all these pirates for transport, but pirates being what they are, they took the money and they ran. They betrayed the rebels and left them stranded in Calabria. Apparently, the rebels then made brave attempts at constructing rafts and boats of their own, but it was it was no good. Crassus was fighting with savage fury, tearing his way south towards these, uh, these rebels. He determined to put down the revolt as quickly and as brutally as possible, and with very good reason. The general Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus, who is often known as Pompey, he had uh, he'd just finished putting down another rebellion in Hispania, and the Senate had ordered them to go straight to the southern end of the Italian peninsula and aid Crassus. Now, Crassus, he wanted the glory from himself, right? He wanted it all for himself. And, and upon hearing the fact that Pompey was going to come and, you know, bring all these reinforcements, he redoubled his efforts to end Spartacus in his revolt before the reinforcements arrived so he could take all the credit. And as Crassus descended upon the rebel army, uh, cornered as it was in this, uh, you know, in, in this uh, region of Calabria, the sort of the toe of the Italian boot, Spartacus made a peace offering and attempted, uh, attempted to negotiate a truce, but Crassus rebuffed it and instead dug a ditch 60 kilometres long across the neck of the entire peninsula, trapping the rebels entirely. 
Spartacus and the rebels, they prepared for their final stand against Crassus and the Romans here. And the story goes that before the battle, Spartacus actually killed his horse, saying that he had no more need of it. He said that if they won, he'd just take one of the Roman horses. But if they lost, he wouldn't need a horse anymore. Bit of a weird way to make the point there, Spartacus, old mate. Bit of a weird way to try to inspire your troops. But I mean, all right, okay. The rebel army was breaking too. I mean, it was many of the men were deserting. They were attempting to escape the region, although not many of them succeeded in doing this. A lot of them were killed by Crassus's forces as they attempted to get away. But those that remained to fight, however, they were rallied by Spartacus, who readied them for one final decisive battle, the Battle of the Salarius River. And in this battle, the rebel army bravely threw themselves at the well-disciplined, well-trained Roman legions and they were slaughtered by the thousand. 36,000 rebels were killed in the battle, while the Roman legions held firm and only lost a fraction of that amount. Spartacus himself is thought to have been killed in this battle, although his body was never found, and he didn't suffer the same fate as many of the rebels who survived. 6,000 of the rebels who survived the slaughter were taken prisoner by Crassus, and they were crucified along the roadside from Rome to Capua. And later, a further 5,000 rebels that escaped the battlefield would be captured as they too attempted to flee to the north. Pompey was dispatched to, to destroy any remnants of the rebel army, and he too crucified his prisoners. And the Third Servile War, after being put down in such a brutal and cruel fashion, went on to have some very important consequences for Rome itself too. Both Pompey and Crassus didn't disband their armies once the rebellion had been crushed, Instead, they camped outside the city with their armies and were both duly elected consul in 70 BCE, maybe because they had, you know, great big armies camped outside the city ready to attack if the election didn't go the way they wanted it to. And 10 years later, the first triumvirate with Crassus, Pompey, and of course, none other than Julius Caesar was formed. And their triumphs in the Third Servile War helped propel these, these careers, the careers of both Crassus and Pompey, into the stratosphere, which led to so much stuff. The triumvirate, the civil war, Caesar's assassination, the formation of the empire in 27 BC, the list goes on. It's just one piece in in a huge puzzle here. But to come back to the Servile Wars, none of these slave revolts that, uh, that constituted the Servile Wars, none of them were successful. And none of them managed to effect enormous long-term change, unfortunately. Slavery continued to exist within ancient Rome, although... In the later years, there were reforms granting a bare minimum of legal rights to slaves. In the coming decades, Rome became an empire and guaranteed rights to slaves such as not being murdered by your owners. But still, slavery remained a part of everyday life in ancient Rome despite these these revolts. However, in some ways, Unisalvius, Spartacus and, and all the others, they did manage to effect some level of change on a smaller scale for those that, that continued to be held in enslavement. Rome had been shaken by these slave revolts very significantly, particularly the third one. And as a result, many people took steps to try to prevent something like this happening again. I wish I could tell you that they realized slavery is a heinous institution and thought better of their moral bankruptcy and having it be a cornerstone of their economy and society. But no, instead it was a selfish desire for self-preservation that guided their actions. Slavery wasn't abolished, sadly. But slave owners, realising that they were driving their slaves into revolt with mistreatment and abuse, treated them less harshly after these revolts. And This wasn't done for particularly defensible reasons. It wasn't done for compassion or anything else like that. It was done for cowardly selfishness after having been scared by people, by, by people like Spartacus. But the Servile Wars nonetheless represent 
some of the very few significant slave uprisings that humanity has ever seen. And they were significant enough to make a lasting impression on history and culture throughout the centuries. The third one in particular was the largest that the world would see for almost 2,000 years until the successful slave uprising that was the Haitian Revolution at the end of the 18th century. But, tragically, none of the servile wars were successful in hastening the end of one of our civilization's most heinous and inexcusable legacies, slavery, which continues to exist in many forms to this very day. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Servile Wars. And it is interesting always to get a bit of actual historical background on something that is sort of in the, you know, the, the, the cultural zeitgeist. I'm sure everyone's heard the phrase, I'm Spartacus, but now you know a little bit more about who Spartacus actually was. So I hope the, uh, I hope the, the, this episode was of some use to you somewhere. Anyway, that is that for this episode. All the normal boring housekeeping stuff coming your way, of course. Halfhousehistory.net is the website. You can go there and find links to old episodes. And, of course, you can subscribe on iTunes, Android, or Spotify, whatever whatever else you like. And if you want to support the show, I had a couple of new Patreons this week, and I appreciate everyone who's jumped on board. It's great to have you. Um, we've got some executive co-producers as well whose business cards are winging their way to them around the world. So thanks, everyone, who is uh, is jumping on board and gaining access to uh, uncut episodes of the show and uh, the, the, the behind the scenes stuff, the notes, whatever else. If you want to do the same, pa- patreon.com slash history. I, I do appreciate it uh, and it helps me keep the uh, helps me keep the podcast not only going but also ad-free. I really don't want to uh, incorporate ads and uh, your support on Patreon is, is allowing me to do that. So thank you very much to everyone who is, uh, who is chucking me the, the dollary dues over there. But that is that for another episode. Do get in touch if you've got any episode suggestions or feedback. Uh, Halfhouseissue.net, there's a contact form there, so you can get across that if you want to get in touch with me. And we'll be closing out the show, as ever, with a question posed on Reddit here. This question comes to us from Redditor IIA, to do with Rome, of course. Talk about Rome a lot today. And IIA wants to know, if all roads lead to Rome, how do I leave?